really nice to be here in Kalgoorlie. A bit different to Melbourne. Have you been to Melbourne? It's a bit different. <laughs> so it's uh, really lovely to be here. I just uh, went for a walk this morning and just sort of thought, this is a bit different to walking around the streets of my home. So uh, just lovely to be here. And I'll bring you greetings, of course, from, from my church back home, Red Church in, uh, in Melbourne. Uh, they're, all, they're all finished by now, of course. They're into the afternoon and, uh, uh, and, and more things are happening over there. So uh, I, I uh, always like to connect the churches because we're all, we're all part of the big church, aren't we, really? And uh, so it's very nice to do that. I was really happy when, uh, when Elliot said that you're looking at 1 Corinthians because I love reading through 1 Corinthians. It's a wonderful book, isn't it? And I, I assume you've probably had some discussion about um, Corinth and, and, and what, uh, what Corinth was about. But it's quite a – I think particularly coming from Melbourne, I feel like, well, this – I think Corinth sounded a bit like Melbourne, you know, that it was uh, this kind of strategically placed kind of spot and – it had people from everywhere, you know. There was uh, because of where it was up at the top of that peninsula, with that little thin bit across there. It was a major trading kind of place. So there was traders from all over the world, and a lot of big boats, a lot of prosperity in in uh, Corinth. And because it was also there, there was a Roman garrison. So there's a lot of Roman kind of soldiers there. And because it was also there in this part of Greece, there were a lot of temples and a lot of uh, worshiping of whole multitude of kind of. Uh, God's hanging out there in, uh, in Corinth as well. And in the midst of that, um, Jesus had been introduced. You know, so through you know, amazing kind of uh, people who, who were part of that, uh, the, the Jewish community who'd come to know Jesus, there was this introduction of Jesus to everybody. And so particularly as you read through this book and, um, and things like you know, 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about how you take communion and, and whether... You know, some people are eating a lot and some people aren't eating much and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that was, this was reflecting this fact that the, the church reflected that uh, population. In, within the church there were uh, Roman soldiers who'd come to know Jesus. There were rich merchants who'd come to know Jesus. There were poor, hard-working kind of slaves who'd come to know Jesus. And there were temple prostitutes who'd come to know Jesus. All in this whole mixture of a church. So kind of the, the, just an amazing kind of church to be writing to and for Paul to be talking to. And so, and, and probably not surprising, there was a few divisions. Uh, not easy to sort of get, get all that bunch of people together and say, you're now one, you know, and uh, they're saying, yeah, yeah, we, we get we're all one, but gee, we're different. <laughs> we struggle with our differences as well. So that wasn't a big surprise that there was conflict uh, that Paul was addressing in all of that. So if we, uh, I'm going to look at First First Corinthians three. I'm not sure that's because um, last week you did First Corinthians two. That seems very logical, doesn't it? But it was also because as I read through, I thought I think First Corinthians three might be a really good chapter to look at uh, in the context of the sort of work that I do. So I might read through it, and um, you might have it up there, and we can we can look at it together. As you do that, or if you've got your Bibles, you might like to read it in your Bibles. I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation, so that's a little bit different to perhaps the translations you made in front of it, but not, not radically. So starting at verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world, 
or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You were jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? And one of, one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Aren't you acting just like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom we believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a built person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? I think I'll read that verse again. It's a good verse, isn't it? Don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy uh, who destroys the temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. So don't boast about following a particular human leader. For everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter, or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Isn't that a great chapter? There's a lot in there, isn't there? And I thought about what, you know, we could talk about a lot of things out of that. Um, I guess I'm going to talk particularly about uh, the stuff that it says about uh, working together and the stuff that it says about uh, the foolishness of the wisdom of this world and how that, uh, how that measures up, particularly when you think about leadership. Because if we think about um, verses 10 and 11, because of grace, God's grace to me, I have, to, I have uh, laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now that others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. So we think about this focus. Um, 
that, uh, that Paul is bringing to sort of say, stop looking at these names, Apollos, Paul, or, you know, obviously there'll be other names as time goes on. Stop looking at these people as if they're the ones we need to follow. You know, we, we talk in the in church often about the importance of discipleship, but sometimes we take that as we, I'm going to disciple someone else, and that means I'll become their master. You know, you know what I mean? Whereas what we're trying, wanting, wanting to do is help people become disciples of Jesus, and we must be really careful about how we do that. Um, I'll come to that one in a minute. Because <laughs> there's a danger of, uh, in our culture of finding heroes that we want to do. And we sort of often will say what we need now is strong leadership. And the truth is as Christians we actually have strong leadership. We have Jesus. We don't need to find this person who will become a kind of a, a symbol of Jesus we have Jesus, and He's the one that we follow, and He's the one that we uh, that we see as our leader, not some person. And, uh, we've just we've lived through sad times in the last few years when we've seen people who've been uh, famous Christians fall in a terrible heap. So only just recently, I've got got an email because of we're, we're involved with uh, sponsoring some events later this uh, year uh, through the Global Leadership Summit to talk about sort of the fact that uh, Willow Creek Church in, uh, in Chicago has had to separate itself totally from Bill Hybels because suddenly there's all this news coming out about his behaviour, awful behaviour. Yet, you know, he's, he's someone I used to love listening to. You know, I used to watch him preach and I think, I love this guy, he seems so humble, he's done some great stuff. And then this happens and you think, oh no. <laughs> This is awful, you know, and, and we just have to kind of realise that we, we can't look to any person uh, as if they are Jesus. There's only one Jesus, only one God. Deuteronomy, it says, you'll worship only one God. You can make people into gods. And so, you know, Paul is addressing this really sharply here and, and turning around and sort of saying, you need to look, think again about wisdom and foolishness in a totally different kind of way. So I'll put this up. This is um, from uh, a, a little book uh, called uh, Becoming Human, written by a man by the name of Jean Vanier. And Jean Vanier uh, was a man who uh, was a professor of philosophy. Um, he, he joined the Navy when he was 14 years old. Uh, his father was the uh, governor of uh, Canada and uh, so he sort of taught philosophy uh, right through into his 30s and then uh, he had his sabbatical and he went to France and uh, was, was, was actually working, was sort of following a particular spiritual mentor there in France who was actually the, the chaplain for a small uh, institution for people with an intellectual disability. So he started visiting that place and um, something changed in him. The people there touched his heart. The men's would say to him, "Hey, don't you know when you go? Can you take me with you? Don't leave me here." And he was horrified by the conditions and the awfulness of the place. And so he understood why they wanted to go. So he went back to Canada, and just felt God was just sort of saying, "No, go back, go back, go back." And so he had to quit his job as a as a professor of philosophy. Uh, went back to a little town called Trolley. And bought this little house and, uh, and invited two men from the local institution to come and live with him. And uh, out of that has flown a, 
a worldwide uh, movement called LASH, the ARC, uh, where people with and without disabilities live together. There's some in uh, all parts of the world. Last year I had the privilege of going to Belfast for a, when every five years all the communities gather together. And this was in Belfast last year and there were 600 people there, about, uh, about a third of those people with an intellectual disability. And there were little communities from Damascus, Bethlehem, uh, Haiti, Tokyo, um, India, Australia, all over the world, mate, quite amazing. And so Jean has written about some of his learning about what it is to be human. And he said most of what he learned, what he's, most of what he's learned how to be human comes from living with people with intellectual disability. You know, that there's, there's just been this dramatic change in how he sees life. And this is just a little kind of quote from his book where he says, um, so it is, uh, sorry, sorry, so what he says um, in the book, he, he talks about, it's actually on my phone, but I won't try and read it off the phone. <laughs> he talks about how he came and he lived in his head. You know, he's, uh, as an intellectual, as a professor of philosophy, he lived there in his head and suddenly he was with these different people who were, lived in their body, lived in their wholeness of who they were. And, uh, and so he says, so it is with the people with intellectual disabilities led me from a serious world into a world of celebration, presence and laughter, the world of the heart. On the other hand, sharing weaknesses and needs calls us together into oneness. We welcome those who love us into our heart. In this communion, we discover the deepest part of our being, the need to be loved and to have someone who trusts and appreciates us and who cares least of all about our capacity to work or to be clever and interesting. Quite a lesson, isn't it? This is what he learned. I mean, he's... he's John is articulate, so he's articulating something that perhaps the people he, with whom he lives can't articulate, but they live it. They live it day by day by day. They celebrate each day. They live when, when things are tough, everybody knows that they're going through tough times. When things are great, everybody knows that there's time for celebration. There's none of this hiddenness and, and I'm just like this all the time. So in a, another... Uh, a, a friend, a man who became a friend of Jean, Jean Vanier was owned by, by a Dutchman by the name of Hen, Henry Nouwen. And uh, Henry was, a, a, again, a famous professor. He'd written a lot of books, uh, lectured at Harvard and realised that he, his life was totally unfulfilled. He was about 60 years of age and uh, Jean said to him, perhaps our people can, can make a home for you because he, he thought he belonged nobody, nowhere, Henry, as a priest, so he lived alone anyway but he tried all kind of community living and nothing touched him. So he went to stay in a large community and he said, I got there and nobody knew who I was. Like he wasn't famous at large because people didn't read books. <laughs> people weren't interested in, in hearing lectures from Henry about all the things that he talked about. They were great things. His books are great books. But um, he said, I got there and nobody knew who I was and nobody cared about who I was. They just loved me. He said, and that broke me. And I actually, he, had to, he actually broke down under those conditions because suddenly he was exposed. You know, he, he actually writes in one of his books, he said, it, it seems like people who don't hide their vulnerabilities and weaknesses don't let you hide yours. That kind of confronted him and drew stuff out of him that he kept hidden for decades and that, that really changed him. So there's this kind of leadership that came for, for, um, for Henry and for Jean, which changed them and transformed their life 
because they realised that there was a different way of living. We didn't have to live this fake kind of life and pretend to be someone else and pretend to be great at all the kinds of things that um, perhaps we weren't great at. I wanted to, um, to refer back to something that I think also picks up this same theme from um, Jeremiah. So, you know, in Jeremiah, uh, the, the prophet was called to bring a lot of bad news to the people of uh, Jerusalem, particularly. You know, he sort of said to them, you've gone way off the planet, you, you've gone right away from God, you're worshipping idols, and you're being unjust to the poor in your community. You're treating everybody really badly. And, uh, and so I'm going to destroy you. You know, you're going to lose everything. Uh, the whole city's going to be knocked down, even the temple. And they, could, they couldn't believe that because they said, no, no, God wouldn't look, knock down his temple. And, and kind of God's perspective was, that's not what's important. That's just a building. You're not worshipping me. So, um, so there was this kind of terrible chapters and chapters and chapters as you read through Jeremiah of condemnation and brutality. And then in the middle there's this little, little um, few chapters which they call the Book of Consolation, which is about the restoration and the promises that he's giving to the people as they are in exile in Babylon about, about how things will change. So as you read through that kind of those chapters, something kind of is, is kind of thrown in there, which is actually just this little thing where, where, uh, where God is saying to the people, I'll bring back my people from the north. And, uh, and then he says, I will not forget the blind and lame, the expectant mothers and women in labour. Now, I'm, I've been looking at this a lot because in the, in the context of our all around it, it seems to be saying that, it, that when I bring the people back from, from, from Babylon, uh, back from exile, uh, in, and it talks about walking along smooth paths by still waters and it's a beautiful kind of picture, that somehow this group of people will be leading the way. You know, the very people who have been mistreated and... and uh, isolated and, and, uh, and pushed away and, and suddenly seem to be brought to the centre of this returning group of exiles who've been pretty roundly defeated. I mean, they've, been, they've had everything taken off them. They've had their leadership taken away and, and, uh, and killed or put into exile. And now they've, they've, they're sort of struggling their way back into occupied territory. So they're not coming back in like this way. <laughs> They're coming back with their heads bowed saying, okay, we're allowed back, God has brought us back, but we don't even own this place anymore. You know, it's like occupied territory by the Persians and we're just going to be uh, colonised now and, and we'll have to pay taxes and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's a pretty humbling kind of experience for people who kept saying, or oh, for the days of David and Solomon, you know, when we'll have big kings and we'll be big again. And, and God has kind of spoken about that and sort of said, in those days you left me. You fell for the David worship and the Solomon worship and the, you know, etc. You know, so they started worshipping their kings and they started worshipping other gods. They started mixing with other people and they lost track of God in their pride and arrogance. And now they're being brought back in humility and the very people who've been pushed aside are now put into the leadership, the blind, the lame, the women in labour and the expectant mothers. Those seem people who seem to be physically weakest and least likely to be showing the way. 
And I think it, it comes back a little bit to some of the stuff that Jean Vanier is writing too, that in fact what's happened is that this is a people who have been proud and arrogant and have felt like they're on top of the world, then they've been defeated and they struggle about how to be humble people. Well, who could lead them best in that? The people who've always been brutalised and struggled. The people who know what it is like to go through hard times. Because sometimes people who've never been through hard times, the hard times come and they fall in a complete heap and they say, oh, that's it, I can't handle it anymore. People don't even like me anymore. You know, this is terrible, I'm feeling persecuted and all that kind of stuff. And then the people with disabilities say, what's new? <laughs> we know that. That, is, that can't stop you. You know, God is bringing us back to restore his kingdom. What are you doing? Get on with the job. <laughs> There's something about people who've been through tough times that creates a resilience uh, that people who've never experienced tough times don't have. That's, and, and that, I, um, if I suddenly flip forward to 2018, that's a year already, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's what the church is facing at the moment too. Now the church is facing tough times. Let's face it, the church is facing tough times. And sometimes you hear um, some parts of the church, I'm sure it doesn't happen here, like, oh, people don't like us anymore, I'm going to pack up my bags and go home. You know, sometimes we, we complain as if, you know, like, that's it, we're done. The church is lost, you know, the church has lost the battle, we're, in, we're, we're done for, you know. And uh, that's not true, is it? No, that's not true. It's just, this is, you know, if this is, if this is persecution, well, I don't mind persecution, you know. There's, a, there's something tougher that's probably coming and we, we need to be tough. If we want to look for where, where it is, how, what it's like to be to tough and push through even against the hardest of odds, look to the people who've lived in the marginalised parts of our society because they've pushed through. People who live, who've lived in, in situations of homelessness, people who've lived through uh, the toughness of, uh, of, of various kinds of disability and been pushed aside and being rejected by family and being rejected by other people, they get how to do this and they're maybe our teachers in times of toughness. So I wanted to maybe just give some examples of people that I know who've done that and uh, perhaps how God has worked through them. So on this next slide I think I've got um, a picture from <coughs> the south of Kenya, Maasai country. Anyone been to Maasai country? It's not that different to <laughs> this country around here. Um, and um, it's pretty dry at times and then when it, when it rains it floods and, um, and it's tough living. The Maasai people are really tough people, I've got to tell you. And uh, so in, in this Maasai country I met a man named Daniel and uh, Daniel lives in an area called Kajado and Kajado is sort of about halfway between Nairobi and the Tanzanian border. It's kind of on the road that goes through south, through, again, that tough, dry uh, kind of countryside. And uh, Daniel uh, has a physical disability. He walks with a bit of a limp and uh, often needs something to sort of just lean on as he goes and that type of thing. And so he is a survivor of uh, polio. So he tells a story about as a boy, when he got polio and he recovered, uh, he, he was part of a, 
a, a, a farming family. You know, the, the farming family, I'm not trying to describe the life, but it's, it's uh, the, the, the cattle and, uh, and the farming kind of uh, goats and, and different animals and they live, there's a little enclosure. And so it's hard work. And so his father kind of looked at him and said, well, Daniel, you can't do that hard work, can you? And in some families that means so we're chucking you out. But Daniel's father said to him, I'm going to have to send you to school, I think. That's <laughs> all, all I can think of to do with you. <laughs> you have to get an education because you've got to learn a living somehow. And so Daniel got the schooling that his brothers didn't get because his brothers, as soon as they're old enough to get out there and uh, help the animals, that's what they did. So Daniel found himself in school, got an education, and now he runs a whole centre uh, for the African Inland Church in Kajado, which includes a health clinic and a centre for children with people with physical disabilities or different kinds of disabilities. And uh, so Daniel sort of says, my disability gave me the opportunity for this education and now I'm a leader in this community. You know, he's gone through tough times to become a leader within his community. He said, as I look at these children, we you know, look out the window and the children were all playing, he said, those children should have the same destiny. Those children are going to be leaders in this community too. And I thought, well, that's a different perspective <laughs> to a lot of people who run services for kids with disabilities. They're thinking they're just getting these kids to survive. He said, these are going to be leaders. <laughs> and, um, and so you know, we went out and saw some of the work that they were doing. And I realised that Daniel's perspective, coming from little remote places like this, this was just a family visiting with a frame. It took us an hour or an hour and a half or something to drive cross-country with a, with a down gullies and up through things on, in four-wheel drives to get there. Sounds a bit like this area too, doesn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and in this kind of tough environment, he was bringing services to people out in, in the, in the uh, rugged kind of territory. And I thought, this is because he gets it. You know, there's something about his life experience which enables him to be a really effective leader in that kind of situation. He doesn't say, hey, come in here and get, we'll give you services. He says, we'll get in the, in the car and we'll come out and give you what you need out there. So there's a sort of sense of he really gets it because he's lived through it. He lived through being a, being a child with a disability in a really tough environment. So on the next slide... I have a, a man, the one, on, the one on your right, the beautiful one on, the, on your left is my wife, and the other fellow in the middle, don't worry about him. Um, so this is a friend of mine and his name is Mike. And I think Mike illustrates this, that little verse in that chapter 3 where it talks about the world's wisdom and, and, uh, and how foolish that is. Because Mike has lived with cerebral palsy for 70 years, born with cerebral palsy, 70 years old now. The doctor told his mum he won't survive past 20. <laughs> so he's now 70 and where's that doctor? <laughs> he's gone. <coughs> uh, but Mike uh, has lived a simple life in many ways because of the restrictions of his physical disability. Um, however, he's a man of immense wisdom. He's a man whose words sometimes take a lot of hard work to understand. And so he's very sharp, careful with those words. He's, he's one of those people who've taught me to use words carefully. If you can only get six words out, other people can understand. You choose each of those six words really, really carefully. 
He writes as well. He uses a head pointer where he bangs a keyboard. And by the time you get to 70, your neck's not going so well with that kind of stuff. So similarly, again, he chooses the keys he hits really carefully. So he, he uses... Um, he's a, he reads and reads and reads. He's got uh, books and books and books, one running into his house and the other, and he reads them voraciously and, uh, and just finds just gems of wisdom in there, which I think reflect his wisdom. Sometimes he uses other people's words because he's too humble to use his own words, but he actually brings a lot of wisdom to that. And uh, I, I think that uh, when we put together the words that Mike has typed out using that head pointer, um, there'll be wisdom for ages. I think I see Mike as a leader in the way that Paul writes about and the way that we need more than anything. You know, the, the stuff that Jean Vanier talks about, the leadership that he's had from people with an intellectual disability, Mike brings not because he has an intellectual disability but because his life has been so restricted that you would say he's not a, he's not a worldly wise person. He's actually... a, a, a person who's got a depth of wisdom that comes from his observations of people. He lived in an institution for a number of years and his observations about power in that institution are, are really worth listening to. Really kind of great wisdom in all of that. So I think, um, I think Mike is just a beautiful leader and someone who's really worth spending time with. And I do, obviously. And uh, on the next slide I think we just kind of come to a finishing point. So this is an illustration. Uh, this year was the 40th anniversary of Larsh in Australia and so all the Larsh communities from around Australia made a pilgrimage up to uh, Alice Springs and went out to Uluru and uh, held a party there. <laughs> Larsh is very good at parties. And, uh, and so the, the people from my community back in Melbourne actually decided they'd drive there so they took a week to drive to Alice Springs, spent a week up there in Alice Springs and Uluru and then a week to drive back. It was quite an adventure. One car didn't make it. Um, <laughs> that's going to happen. Reminds me, what's happened to that car? Anyway, um, so this is just a bit of a scene from there. It was just some beautiful moments as people shared and people with and without an inclusivity spent time together. And uh, again, I think there's some wisdom that came out of that gathering that we'll probably sort of think through for a long time to come as we realise just how much we learn from people who seem weak uh, but aren't. And so we read that, don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? That's, I think, the message for the church today. If we want to be the church that Christ has called us to, we need to embrace every single member and realise that there are things that are brought by every single member. All too often... Uh, we find ourselves falling for the idea that, that there are certain people with a high profile in the church and they're the real leaders. I know in this church that's not the attitude or the, 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 uh, the pride and arrogance that can be found. There's a humility about leadership within this church. And in doing so we actually look to who are the people who bring the kind of wisdom that we need now? Who are the people that don't feel like, oh dear, you know, just because people don't like us, that's awful, we had better give up. Who are the people who would say, this is not persecution, you wait. Who are the people who actually get what it is to, 
tough it out through the most difficult of times and get what it is to be told you're no good, you're worthless and you make no contribution. They're the people we need to look for, for leadership as we become the church that God needs right now, here in Kalgoorlie, back in Melbourne, wherever it is in the world, particularly here in Australia, as we do the things that God has called us to do to transform this nation. Thank you for tuning in to our latest message. Please visit our SoundCloud profile at KBC Media for more podcasts. We would love to invite you to Kalgoorlie Baptist Church to attend our 10 a.m. services on Sunday mornings. Kalgoorlie Baptist Church, where our vision is faith found in Jesus, hope for the future, and love for our community.